the Buddhist teachings offer food for thought. It's good to reflect on these teachings. This is what the Buddha said, find people that can hear the teachings, listen and reflect. And then from there, we can put the teachings into practice. And of course, that's a process. The Buddha's story uh, provides the setting, his own story provides the setting for many of the teachings, uh, his relationships with certain, uh, certain beings during his time uh, provide uh, narratives that uh, offer us the teachings. There's different uh, beings that the Buddha interacted with, many beings, uh, some who were quite uh, central in the teaching in terms of the stories. One of those beings is the Buddha's own son, Rahula. And some of the most important teachings uh, in the Pali Canon uh, are teachings in which uh, the Buddha offered the Dharma to his son. Uh, one of the most pivotal is one that many of us are familiar with, the instructions to Rahula at Mangostone, uh, MN62 in the Majjhima Nikaya, MN61, excuse me. Uh, it said that uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha gave this teaching to his son when his son was seven years old. And in the teaching begins with uh, the Buddha uh, teaching his son, uh, Rahula, uh, the importance of truthfulness, uh, the importance of not speaking falsely uh, as being integral to uh, becoming a person of integrity, a person who others will respect, a person who will have self-respect. And as the Buddha explains to uh, Rahula, the karmic consequences of speaking unskillfully, uh, speaking falsely, are quite profound. As he uh, teaches Rahula, uh, if we are uh, somebody who's not truthful in our speech uh, with others, uh, this will ultimately lead to us lacking the ability to be truthful with ourselves about our actions. Uh, we'll lie to ourselves when we're unskillful. And of course, it's our actions that determine our happiness in this life. So our practice is a practice, as the Buddha taught Rahula, of being heedful of our actions. Uh, uh, so in that particular teaching, uh, the Buddha uh, gives Rahula the, the basic instructions for practicing heedfulness. Pay attention to your actions before you act in terms of your, your deeds, your speech, and your mental action, your thinking. Pay attention to your actions, your deeds, your speech, your thinking while you're acting, and then afterwards reflect. And as you reflect before, during, and after, as it's really a process of looking and reflecting on your actions, uh, you know, the primary reflection is, is this action skillful? Is it leading to happiness for myself and others? Is it informed by loving kindness and compassion and is leading to happiness or is it unskillful, leading to suffering away from happiness, informed by aversion and desire and or desire? So 
so the basic teaching on heedfulness, discernment, on the very pragmatic and practical level uh, of uh, looking at our actions. When Rahula was uh, turned 18, he became a monk. Uh, and, of course, a student of uh, his, his father uh, as a monk. Uh, in one of the, uh, another very important sutta in the Majjhimanakaya MN62, the greater exhortation uh, to Rahula, which will be in the notes, uh, the Buddha gives uh, what's said to be his first instruction to Rahula once Rahula became a monk. Uh, and uh, I'll just read a little bit from that passage. I always think of this, you know, sort of like the first day, the first day, uh, in, in, you know, in, in the family business, if you will. And it said, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Sawati in Jetta's Grove and not Appendika's monastery. That's where the Buddha did a lot of his teaching back in the day. Uh, then the Blessed One, the Buddha, early in the morning put on his robes and carrying his bowl and outer robe went into Sawati for alms. He went on his alms round. Uh, and Venerable Rahula early in the morning put on his robes and carrying his bowl and outer robe went into Sawati for alms following right behind the Blessed One. Then the w Blessed One looking back at Rahula, can't you see it? You know, they're walking down the robe, the, the road and you know, Rahula's got his bowl following eagerly behind his dad, the, the Buddha. Then the Blessed One, looking back at Rahula, addressed him. Rahula, any form whatsoever that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or common, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. So the first teaching that uh, the Buddha gives to Rahula when Rahula becomes a monk is the teaching on not-self, is the teaching on not-self. He, he uh, offers this teaching to Rahula uh, as a way of uh, instructing Rahula that he should look at experience, he should look at his experience. He should look and learn to see that all conditioned experience is not self. You know, all experience of body and mind is not self. These aggregates of body and mind, these experiences that we cling to, uh, if it's the experiences of the body or the experiences of the mind, all of which arise as form, all of which arise as form, uh, in the body, if it's physical sensation or mental, emotional experience, all sense experience arises as form in the body. All form is not self. It's not mine. I don't, you don't own. We don't own it. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, you know, the instruction on its most uh, essential level is to see that. The experience that we hold on to, you know, which the experience of the body and mind is what we hold on to, the different forms of sense experience, including mental sense experience, is what we hold on to. 
what we have to learn to see, the Buddha is telling Rahula, is that these experiences are, are not-self, anatta, impermanent, not-self, inherently unsatisfactory. So this is how to look at the world. This is how to look at the world. When we talk about the world, we're talking about experience. This is how we look at the world of experience. All of our sense experience of body and mind and other sense experiences that we have to learn to look at the world this way, to see. And of course, this is a process of seeing, of understanding through clear seeing that conditioned experience the experience of body and mind is not self, it's empty, it's void, inherently unsatisfactory. So this is a process that we engage in, uh, you know, and you know, as the Buddha instructs Rahula, you know, we should have to start to begin to uh, engage in this process right from the beginning. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, it's a process that uh, will ultimately lead to wisdom and to understanding. But, you know, we have to keep looking. This understanding that all conditioned experience is empty, is not self, is one that uh, we begin with that intellectual uh, notion that the Buddha offered to Rahula, but it's something that we have to see for ourselves. We have to pay attention to our experience, specifically the experience of body and mind that we're holding on to, as we all are, you know, we're all holding on to the different sensations in different ways in the body and the experiences of mind. Uh, we have to learn to look at those experiences and reflect on those experiences. This is known as appropriate attention. Uh, and to uh, begin to uh, question that experience and reflect and to see uh, that this experience is not self. So we're developing what's known in the teaching as the Dhamma I. The Dhamma I, this is the way that a Dhamma student, a Dharma student, learns to look at experience. As Rahula, at, at 18, becoming a monk and a mature Dharma student, he had to start to look at his experience this way. Just if, like if you were a scientist, a physicist, you would learn to look at matter in a certain way. As a Dharma student, we learn to look at the experiences of body and mind uh, and develop that perception of impermanence and not-self, to develop that Dhamma eye, that way of seeing. Now, of course, Rahula became a monk, uh, and as a monk, he practiced a lot of renunciation, giving up a lot of conditioned experience, a lot of worldly experience. Uh, Chances are most of us aren't going to become monks or nuns, but it certainly uh, will help us greatly if we practice some sense restraint, some letting go of some conditioned experience, uh, particularly uh, conditioned experience that can, uh, can aggravate and agitate uh, the senses, uh, if we're going to be able to see clearly, right? If we have too much sense experience going on, it's very difficult to see clearly. One of the things I learned early on in my meditation practice was uh, what our teachers were telling us back in those days, which was a very important teaching, too much activity at the sense doors is a hindrance to mindfulness. So 
know, this is why we meditate, this is why we go on retreats, so we have a little bit less sense experience to deal with. You know, we're ostensibly, you know, we're, when we're meditating, we're putting aside some sense experience. On a retreat, we're putting aside quite a bit of sense experience, but even during the course of our days, we want to try to limit uh, our amount of sense experience so that we're able to see clearly and develop the Dhamma eye, so that we can develop wisdom, so that we can develop wisdom. Now, ultimately, uh, the most important element in creating conditions so that we can develop wisdom, so that we can see clearly, is concentration. Uh, so the cultivation of jhana enables us to see clearly, to see not-self, to see not-self. Because again, not-self is a concept to see the empty nature, to see that, oh, that experience of emotion is not-self, this feeling of anxiety is not-self. That's, that's not an idea. It starts off as an idea, but ultimately, you know, and this is when it becomes wisdom and, you know, and, and truth, Dhamma, you know, is when you see it for yourself as it is, according to reality. This is not self. You can see that, but it requires clear seeing, which is a function largely of concentration, function of renunciation, a, fun a function of skillful action, action that puts us in a state of non-agitation. But this concentration enables us to see not-self, to see it. It's not an idea. We can see this. This isn't mine. This feeling of worry isn't mine. It's impermanent. It's not-self. It's empty. It's void. Concentration en enables us to develop the Dhamma eye. So, you know, after uh, the Buddha gave that teaching to Rahula, uh, and again, you read the Sutta and you can reflect on it. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Rahula said, "You know, I better meditate." You know, the, the Buddha just gave me this teaching on not self. You know, I don't really quite get it, but I better sit down and meditate so that I can start to understand that. So he went and he sat down under a tree, and of course, he didn't really know what he was doing. Sariputta came along, who was the Buddha's one of the Buddha's main disciples, and said, "Practice mindfulness of breathing." Rahula said, all right, great, I'm going to practice mindfulness of breathing. Uh, and then at the end of the day, Rahula went back home and uh, and uh, the Buddha saw him and Rahula said, you know, how do you practice mindfulness of breathing? You know, and the Buddha gave him the instructions for uh, anapanasati, anapanasati, anapanasati. One of my teachers called it anapanasati. Uh, uh, so he gave him the instructions for practicing mindfulness of breathing. Uh, so the practice of mindfulness of breathing uh, is a very profound practice that enables us to develop the Dhamma eye to see into the void and empty nature of conditioned experience, to see that these things that we're holding on to so tightly, that we're so pre preoccupied with, are actually empty and void and don't have to be held on to. So our practice is a practice of, through concentration and renunciation, of learning to see clearly, to see that all conditioned experience is anatta, anatta, impermanent, not self, void, empty. To see that we don't have to hold on to these experiences of body, 
to these experiences of mind, these emotions that arise in the body as form. We don't have to hold on to the feelings of anger and worry and sadness and anxiety and despair. To see that if we do hold on, we'll suffer. To see that when we hold on, the heart is blocked. You know, that's the way that we like to think about what suffering is that we're blocked off from the heart and our source of greatest wisdom, our source of love and compassion and joy, we're blocked off from if we hold on to these conditioned experiences. To see that, and this is another way of thinking about this, to see and understand through clear seeing that if we pin our hopes on these conditioned experiences, you know, we'll suffer. You know, to see that if we're looking for happiness in, uh, you, know, you know, emotions being the way that we want them to be and the body being the way that we want it to be, we'll suffer. To see through clear seeing that if we're preoccupied with conditioned experience, with the various emotions, with the experience of the body, if we're preoccupied with wanting what we don't have and not wanting what we have. It's a very simple way that the Buddha uh, oftentimes uh, talked about uh, the way that we become preoccupied with conditioned experience, wanting what we don't have, not wanting what we have. If we're preoccupied with conditioned experience, we'll suffer, we'll not be happy, we'll have a life of unhappiness. Many beings live a life of unhappiness and seek to quell that unhappiness in ways that only bring them more unhappiness by indulging in sense pleasure and all manner of uh, unskillful behaviors or just checking out. So as we learn to see clearly into the empty nature, the not-self nature, the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned experience, the experience of body and mind, we cultivate disenchantment with experience. We cultivate disenchantment with conditioned experience and with our clinging to it. You know, we cultivate disenchantment with what we're doing, the way that we're holding on. And of course, you know, we don't even monks and nuns don't completely abandon conditioned experience. We don't abandon all conditioned experience. Someday I'll give a talk. Uh, I've already got the title. You know, the ultimate purpose of conditioned experience. You know, we don't uh, completely abandon conditioned experience. It has a purpose. This talk, this Dharma talk, is a conditioned experience. You know, uh, it has a purpose. You know, I mean, ultimately, you know, the purpose of all conditioned experience is to move us beyond conditioned experience, right? But the only way you get beyond conditioned experience is through conditioned experience. So, uh, ultimately, ultimately, so this talk. We need beings in our lives so that we can hear the Dharma, who can, so who, who can support us in our efforts to practice the Dharma, to know happiness in this life. Of course, the 
pivotal conditioned experience that supports our practice uh, and our ability to know happiness in this life is the conditioned experience of concentration, of jhana. Uh, so in and of itself, you know, that particular conditioned experience brings us ease in a state of well-being. And of course, it puts us in position so that we can understand conditioned experience and move beyond it. So we learn to lessen our preoccupation with conditioned experience. So that's a good way to think about it, right? We're lessening our preoccupation with conditioned experience, particularly certain experiences that we're holding on to of body and mind, which is sort of what our relationship to conditioned experience is largely about. You know, the grasping on to experiences of body and mind, the grasping on to the sense experiences. So as we lessen our preoccupation with the conditioned realm, uh, we begin to turn to the unconditioned. We begin to turn to the unconditioned. We begin to be able to notice that which is unconditioned, that which doesn't die. See, our, our, our biggest problem and the biggest drawback with our preoccupation with the conditioned realm, with conditioned experience, is we're so preoccupied with the conditioned realm that we don't notice the unconditioned. We can't even notice the unconditioned because we're so preoccupied. We're so focused on getting what we want and not having what we have that we don't want, that we don't notice the unconditioned. We don't notice the happiness that's all, it's always there. We just don't notice it because we're so preoccupied with conditioned things. So our practice is lessening our grip on conditioned things. You know, the, the sage Nagarjuna who came some hundreds of years after the Buddha uh, and was generally credited for the beginning of Mahayana Buddhism, you know, his primary teaching known as the two truths, ease fixation and teach contingency, teach emptiness. You know, Tao to Buddhas who teach ease fixation and teach contingency. So we're learning to ease our fixation. I love that teaching because it doesn't say stop your preoccupation completely. Start to ease your preoccupation with conditioned things. Begin to ease your preoccupation with conditioned things. So our practice is easing our fixation, lessening our preoccupation with conditioned things and turning to what's not conditioned. Turning to what's not conditioned. The breath meditation, as the Buddha uh, taught and Saraputta taught young Rahula, and the development of concentration, jhana, through breath meditation, enables us to develop what's known as the heightened mind. So this is a very important concept in the Buddhist teachings, the heightened mind. We're training ourselves to have a heightened mind so that we can step back from our experience, take a step back and look and see clearly with a heightened mind. 
a mind that's above experience. And from this place of the heightened mind, we're able to see the emptiness of conditioned things. We're able to see the not-self nature of conditioned things. And seeing that, we're able to lessen our preoccupation on conditioned things. And then from the heightened mind, we're able to see what doesn't die. We're able to see the unconditioned. We're able to see that quality, to understand that quality of true happiness, the happiness that doesn't die. Without the heightened mind, we're not going to see those things, or we may have experiences, inadvertent experiences, of knowing the happiness that doesn't die, but our capacity to know the happiness that doesn't die to the degree which it's going to have a profound impact on our lives so that our lives are informed uh, by that goodness uh, uh, depends on the heightened mind. So we learn to develop the heightened mind. See, in the Buddha's teaching, it's a teaching of cause and effect. You know, he doesn't say uh, so much uh, cultivate the happiness that doesn't die. That's already there. You know, what he says and what he teaches us to do is create conditions so that we can know the truth about conditioned things and so that we can know and see the heightened mind. You know, we just can't see it because we don't have a heightened mind. So we're developing those conditions through the practice of meditation and sense restraint. This is why experiences like what we're doing today in terms of meditating are so, so important. You know, so that we have a heightened mind, so that we can know the happiness that's available to us in this life, because that's the only way we're going to know it. Is we have that heightened mind. That's why experiences and practices like the retreat that we're going to have next weekend, and of course, uh, the longer retreat. You know, one of the reasons why I really try to emphasize in April is so important because one of the reasons why I emphasize, you know, retreat practice, I don't emphasize it, but I encourage it and why we do retreats uh, and the great benefit of it, one of the great benefits of it is that you see things that in a normal daily sitting you can't see necessarily or in the course of your normal, you know, your days, you know, as householders in the world that are harder to see. But on a retreat, you begin to see some of these things that are hard to see, that are hard to see. You know, and then once you learn to see them, you know what they look like. You know what they look like. And you can begin to identify them more when you have some, to some extent, a heightened mind. Once you get back to your, your, your world. One of the hard things about retreat, of course, is that, you know, when you get back to your world, uh, this is a little bit way premature, since we haven't even had the retreat yet, uh, is that you also see the inherently and unutterably flawed nature of conditioned experience. So there can be quite a profound disenchantment with the ways of the world. That's good. That's good. Uh, even like on a day long, I always like, you know, I say after the, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you go for a walk, you know, and, and, and see what it's like to, to, you know, walk down a street in New York City or Berlin or wherever you are with a heightened mind. What's it like to be in the world with a heightened mind? So from this place of the heightened mind, we 
can know the unconditioned. We're able to see what we previously hadn't been able to see from this place of a heightened mind. We're able to know this happiness that doesn't die. So the Buddha's path, concentrate. the Buddha's, the heart of the path is concentration. The Buddha's path is a path to knowing this happiness. That's what the Buddha's path is. I mean, you know, it's, there's a lot of ways that the Buddha's teachings are used in the, in the modern world that don't really have all that much to do with what the Buddha taught. You know, the path is a path to knowing this happiness that doesn't die. It's what this path is about. It's what the Buddha taught. You know, he set out to teach this. He said, I've seen this. You know, he said, I basically have seen two things. You know, the, the inherently unsatisfactory nature of the conditioned realm. I've seen that these things that I'm grasping to are not self. And I've also seen that there's, you know, when I stop grasping onto these things that I'm able to connect to that which is unconditioned. You know? And I'm going to teach this so that people can know a greater happiness, this happiness that doesn't die. So he set out to teach this. And then he, you know, he, he kind of scratched his head and he said, I don't know if I should do this. These things are going to be hard for people to see. It's going to be hard for people to see uh, the happiness that doesn't die. So he reflected on it. You know, it's said that he was visited by, uh, you know, the, the devas. And uh, uh, he realized that, you know, there were some beings with just a little dust in their eyes who would be able to see. The doors to the deathless, he said, are open to those with just a little dust in their eyes. So this is our practice, rubbing the dust out of our eyes, rubbing the dust out of our eyes. So as Dharma students, uh, this is something we can do, and we should remember this. You know, we can do this. We can rub the dust out of our eyes and no true happiness. And we should remember that this is the path. It's a path of awakening. It's a path to awakening. It's a path to that which is unconditioned. You know, and it's a path that we follow every day as Dharma students. We're asked to know the unconditioned and this happiness that doesn't die.